Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is my good friend, David McFarland. Having one of the most extensive backgrounds in the media and entertainment sector, additionally, David's a social impact advisor, an executive film and TV producer, and a very strong advocate for mental health and suicide prevention, among other things. We're honored that David is sharing some of his time with us. David, how are you doing today? Doing good. Can't good. complain. And good. you? Hey, I'm alive and well during this uh, crazy time, so I'm grateful. Yeah, I always get asked that question. You know, when I get that asked that question, the first place I go, which I don't normally answer, but every day I'm six feet above ground is a good day. <laughs> That's good. So David, how do, you, how do you manage your high level of expertise? Let's say while making a movie, while staying so active in the mental health and suicide prevention area, Please tell us a little bit about that. Um, I often ask that, that same question of myself. Um, but, you know, really, you know, I'm at a place in my career uh, where it has come full circle. So, you know, for lack of a better term, all the, the pieces of the puzzle have fallen into place. And, you know, my career began in media and entertainment um, on the distribution side and also on the network side and programming side. And then, you know, fast forward into the world of uh, nonprofit and philanthropy um, led me to uh, the world of mental health and suicide prevention, which led me to work in the social impact space and social responsibility around LGBT issues, mental health, suicide equality, inclusion, et cetera. And uh, that intersection for me, because of my background in media and entertainment and sport as a former elite athlete myself, um, you know, all these intersections just beautifully came together with sport and entertainment and media and music. So um, now I'm at a place where I can take all those experiences and, um, you know, relationships and bring people to the table um, to make things really happen in the spaces that I'm working in. So uh, typically it would be challenging, but, you know, three plus decades of this work has led me to where I am today. And you started your career 
like you said, in the media and entertainment industry, doing a lot of business strategy work and distribution. But social responsibility in business is very important today. But I, yep. see, I see many companies misfiring when it comes to their communities. So why did you make that shift into a much bigger level on the social responsibility part of these businesses? <laughs> That's a great question because, you know, I started this journey well over a decade ago and, you know, people had no idea what social impact or social responsibility was. In fact, you know, when I brought that, when that conversation came up, people are like, okay, so social media, so you work with influencers, and I'm like, no, 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 no. So, um, you know, I have always been an early adopter. I've always sort of been that kind of guy looking out into the world, you know, um, and living in the clouds, I guess, a little bit in vision. Um, and uh, I saw an opportunity um, to really hone in on social impact when it came to uh, diversity and inclusion around LGBT issues, as well as uh, mental health and suicide prevention, um, particularly in the worlds of entertainment and sport. So, you know, from there, I just, you know, look, I put a lot on the back burner um, of my career and went full throttle in this space um, when very few uh, companies or uh, entities were hiring people to do the work that I'm doing and or on a consulting basis or even internally. You know, fast forward to 2020, corporate social responsibility um, is a major uh, factor in, in corporations now because they realize that um, they do have a responsibility to their consumers, to their communities uh, to do good. And, you know, mental health and suicide prevention has always been a very difficult and challenging area for corporations to sort of address. It's a, it's a very dark place to go. It's difficult. It's not easy to have this conversation, particularly in the corporate environment. And when you look in the worlds of entertainment and sport, which are so inspiring and make such a great impact on culture and society, the last thing that those companies want to do is align mental health and suicide with their brands because uh, it's not very inspiring, right? But that shift has happened now. And I think what you will see and what we are seeing is the new corporate um, imperative is going to be around mental health and suicide to not only take care of uh, their employees, uh, which are experiencing high levels of mental stress today in the pandemic area, but also in um, the consumers that they reach and the communities that they serve. Uh, they, they see not only the responsibility, but the opportunity from a business perspective to be engaged in these conversations to make a difference. So, you know, my journey was in the early day when no one was really talking about it. And now it's one of the hottest topics, um, you know, social impact and people are still trying to figure out what it is, but you know, there is a small group of us across this country that really work in day in and day out and have made a lot of sacrifices personally and professionally to get to this point. Great. Well, let me ask you a question. You did a documentary on the LBG 
TQ athlete. Mm-hmm. What, what prompted you to do that? Well, uh, you know, a number of um, things brought me to that space. Um, first of all, I, I, I felt like this story really hadn't been told on the big screen or in big media. Um, and we had seen so many um, conversations happening around LGBT equality in sport, because it truly is one of the last closets that exists. <clears throat> and, um, but no one was really showing it on the big screen and experiencing. We were doing a lot of talking, right? We weren't providing visibility other than, you know, those um, high profile athletes that have come out speaking about it publicly, which was really important, right? Visibility is really important. So I got to a point where I'm like, you know, we really need to tell this story and we need to tell it in a big media type of way that can scale and reach a lot of people and allow them to come into a world that they've never seen before and walk in the shoes of a closeted athlete and what that's really like. Um, so we can begin to set the tone for a conversation that was well overdue and uh, begin to break down, um, you know, the barriers of, of homophobia and transphobia and biphobia that, uh, exist in sport um, in a big way. And it's a conversation that sport um, reluctantly did not want to have. But, you know, fast forward to 2020, that conversation is happening more, more and more. Um, and really, Tim, at the end of the day, I wanted, I didn't want to preach to the choir of the LGBT community, right? But even the LGBT community look at sport because we have been alienated as a community at a very young age that sport wasn't a place. I wanted that message to resonate um, not only with everyday Americans um, and also the LGBT community, but I wanted it to really resonate with LGBT young people um, that they do have a home and do have a place in sport because, you know, frankly, when you look, and I get this question all the time, David, LGBT equality and issues have come so far and we're talking about it and so many policies and laws have been passed. I mean, for crying out loud, you have, you know, you can legally get married this day and age. And my response to that is, yes, we have as a community have come a long way. But if you look out into the world, uh, you see LGBT people um, visible in every aspect of culture and society. You see them as attorneys, as doctors, as politicians, as you know, writers, as producers, as actors and actresses, and you know, even clergy, right? But you don't see them on the playing fields of America. And there's a reason why. Um, and that's tied heavily to the systemic and institutional issues that exist around this issue in sport. And it also is tied heavily to masculinity on the male side of things. So really to wrap it up, I mean, I just wanted to introduce storytelling and tell a story that had not been told, that was real and authentic, and people could see it in real time, you know, what was happening to elite athletes that lived in the closet and not only how it imp impacted their personal life, but also their professional future as a professional athlete. That's great. I really appreciate you bringing up uh, 
the angle of masculinity. Uh, that's something that I like to speak about because it has a stigma attached to it and it needs to be talked about for a, a, a better and healthier and happier people okay. and community. So we'll get into that in a minute, but I wanted to ask you, you know, when you were growing up or just starting out in your career, did you ever think you'd be such an influence, influencer in all these areas? Had no idea. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I was a kid that sat in front of the television when I was a little kid <laughs> and um, could recite commercials. You know, <laughs> my grandmother's like, he knows every commercial that's on television. So at a very young age, I was attracted to the medium, um, TV and film. So I knew, I mean, I studied medicine undergraduate and was, you know, planning to go into sports medicine. Um, but there was a shift. I mean, I think that shift was I didn't want to spend the, the next eight years in school. Um, <laughs> and so why not follow my dream of big of Hollywood, right, and entertainment and media. And I did that, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, I luckily was able to bro break through into the industry. And, um, you know, people gave me a chance. And, you know, it was my turn to prove to them that they made the right decisions in hiring me. And uh, that's how I ended up in, in, the, uh, in the world of media and entertainment. And then once I got into that, you know, I worked for companies that truly did care. I mean, MTV Networks, where I worked, you know, in the early days in New York, MTV was changing culture with young people. It was speaking a language that no one was speaking to our youth in America, good or bad, and some people might think. But, and uh, I really, you know, that's really where I got the first sense of, wow, big media and entertainment and storytelling and influential voices can really make a difference in a cultural shift in our in society. And, um, you know, how do I do that? And so, you know, I just progressed through my career. And, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, <clears throat> that path and how I got to today. And it's, uh, um, you know, but no, I never thought that I would be where I am today. It's just, you know, all the pieces have fallen into place. And, you know, um, the opportunities were there and I seized them and made it happen. With, with everything you do, can you describe to our listeners your style of business that you use in these areas? Or is there a central message that you try to get across? <laughs> uh, never give up. I mean, even when you thought you made it, you know, keep working. Um, so hard work, commitment, uh, you got to truly have a passion for what you're doing. I mean, passion drives everything for me, um, you know, in terms of business values, you know, integrity and commitment um, and showing up are right there at the top. Um, and, you know, I think that to always remember why you started to begin with, you know, and uh, when you do feel like giving up, um, just remember why you started the whole process. And it's a, it's a nice reminder that, hey, what I'm doing here is making a difference. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of things that drive me. But, you know, really, I mentioned this earlier, everything that I do is for the youth of 
not only our country, but around the world and, and helping to make a difference and making it easier for the next generation. Great. And looking back, is there a moment where you felt the most gratification in doing this kind of work? Wow. Why was that? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of big, um, uh, and I say big, impactful is really what I mean, um, events that occurred that I sat back and I'm like, oh my God, I pulled this off. How did I do this? That really were um, so impactful and so profound um, that just can p- continue to push me to the highest levels. And, you know, they have to do with, uh, you know, being honored at the White House as a champion of change and, um, you know, advancing suicide prevention and mental health issues, particularly with LGBT issues. Um, I mean, going to the White House, meeting the president, being honored by the White House, and, you know, this presidential honor was pretty incredible. Uh, something you never forget. And, you know, when you stand in that White House and, and you're really in the White House, the most powerful home in the world, it's like profound. And when that is there to honor the work that you've done with um, good people, because um, no one does this work alone, it's, um, it, it, it's just something you never forget um, and continues to drive you. You know, there was another big... Um, event in my life, you know, going back to 2012, 13, when we started to see uh, LG, anti-LGBT laws and draconian laws put into place in Russia around our LGBT brothers and sisters, um, I got heavily involved on an international level. And, you know, obviously Red Square and, you know, the Kremlin were very well of the work that I was doing because um, we were doing this prior to the Sochi Winter Olympics. And, um, you know, that's the intersection of sport. And so, you know, huge platforms, but also at the end of the day, wanted to make sure that the athletes, the spectators, everyone that was in Russia and at the Olympics that were gay were also protected. And, you know, I had a conversation with a dear friend of mine who headed up human rights at the United Nations. And I proposed this idea um, in 2013, the middle of the year, summer, why don't we bring LGBT equality and human rights and intertwine that with um, sport and Sochi Winter Olympics to the iconic chambers of the United Nations and have a conversation. And it came back, back to me and he graciously said, this is an incredible idea. Let's do it. And I'm like, wonderful. What do we need to do? And he said, well, we need to get 30 plus nations and the European Union on board. And I'm like, oh, great, you're going to take care of that, right? (laughs) We did it together and we got the ambassador to the UN at the Netherlands to sort of lead that effort. But that did happen on International Human Rights Day in uh, December of uh, 2013, prior to the Sochi Winter Olympics in 2014. And, you know, essentially, I brought Jason Collins, who was the first, uh, you know, NBA player to come out recently to represent the new guard and um, and also Martina Navratilova who you know blazed a trail for LGBT equality in the early days and up into today at representing sort of our history along with um, you know human rights defenders from 
uh, Africa, Russia, and the U.S., and put them on a panel hosted by the, an anchor from NBC News. And um, people showed up, even, you know, Ban Ki-moon, um, the Secretary General at the time. And, you know, I won't go into the details of what happened there, but it was profound. The Russians were not happy about it. But um, the, uh, it was very successful. And out of that came <clears throat> the call for a meeting with the UN Secretary Ban Ki-moon, uh, Thomas Bach, the head of the IOC, and uh, President Putin um, to convene in Russia to address this issue around LGBT equality and, and protection, um, not only within the country, but particularly around the Olympic Games. And that made headline news. And you, can, you, know, you saw the headline news then start to sort of, how does this affect sport? And we started having the conversation around you know, not having the Olympics or other major world championships in countries that you know, basically had killed the gay bills on, on the, uh, on, uh, in, their, in their legal system. And, um, you know, from that meeting, a lot of that happened, but also not long after that, the USOC went before the mothership of the International Olympic Committee and uh, for the first time put LGBT um, into their charter. Um, so it was, not only was the gathering at the UN historical on this issue, but the USOC, including LGBT into its charter, um, was historical. And then the IOC, a year later, um, introduced it into their uh, charter protections. Um, so a lot came out of that. And that sort of was when a lot of the conversation started in this space around LGBT equality and sport beyond um, the most recent that have come out, like Jason Collins. So very proud of that moment. So the White House, UN, and then one, you know, one other period, and not to bore everyone, but it's pretty exciting to me. You know, back in 2010-11, when we were dealing with <clears throat> all these young people that were taking their lives, were hitting the headline news, and contagion had sat in, um, that fell on my shoulders in terms of how are we going to address this in this country. And frankly, you know, <clears throat> I didn't know what to do. Um, so I said, you know what? I can't wear this burden or carry this burden on my own. So I'm gonna take this to the highest office in the land. And I took it to President Obama and uh, Michelle Obama and the White House. And that's what ignited this whole conversation around LGBT suicide and mental health protections and bullying. We never talked about bullying before that period of time and really put that on not only the national radar screen, but the map um, globally. And uh, policy changes kicked in, the conversation happened, and Hollywood showed up. And, you know, one of my favorites, Gaga, showed up and, you know, idolized one of the kids on the stage. I think it was the Billboard Awards. Um, and at the moment that was happening, <laughs> I called my head of PR and I said, because she said, you know, it was, Jamie, it was Jamie that she put up on the big, big screen, which you don't want to do that because you don't want to idolize someone that's taken their life because everyone wants to be idolized by Gaga. So you don't want to create contagion where other Jamies out there take their life. And um, I basically, and she called out for a meeting with the president of the United States. So I said to my PR person, call her manager and have her shut down this conversation, explain why. 
and uh, let her know that I'll help coordinate this meeting at the White House, which she eventually happened. And out of that came the Born This Way Foundation um, and a personal, you know, meeting with Gaga, um, which was incredible. I mean, she's an incredible person and she truly is committed to making a difference with young people. So our values were very much aligned. And that was a very, very special moment, you know, this big mega superstar um, that was really keeping it real. And we were having a conversation and beyond the conversation, she was doing things and committing resources to make a difference in this space and uh, which she continues to do today. So um, that was really, those three moments are pretty, were pretty profound <laughs> for me. Well, those are phenomenal. I got to congratulate you. Those are excellent. I have a tangential question. Uh, I spent time in Washington, D.C. when I attended Georgetown University and used to play basketball with Dave Copay, who, oh, wow. who yeah. played for, uh, football for the Washington Redskins. Yes. Did you? So you're aware of, of his story? Oh, yeah, totally. Well, Dave and then um, I'm blanking on his name. His teammate on the Redskins was also yeah. <clears throat> I mean, there's a very interesting story that comes from Dave and, um, you know, um, that whole situation of the Redskins, because at the time, did you know Dave was gay? I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. It, was he out? Yeah, he was very open about it. Yeah. Um, so at that time, Vince Lombardi was coaching the Redskins. And, um, you know, one of the greatest coaches in the world. And, you know, I often have football coaches ask me, you know, David, look, you know, we're all about winning, but I do care about this. And I do care about the mental health. You know, uh, if I have any gay players, like what's one thing that I can do? And, you know, I'm like, well, look, I'll tell you what to do. It's a very short answer. I just need for you to commit to doing it. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. If it's easy and short, I'll do it. I'm like, all right, the next time you go into your locker room, say it's on a Friday, <clears throat> you tell your boys, <clears throat> great week, great workout, guys are looking good, go have an amazing weekend with your friends, your family, your girlfriend and your boyfriend or your boyfriend and don't miss a beat. And they're like, boyfriend, I can't say boyfriend. And I'm like, why not? It's one word. I told you I'd make it easy. Well, you know, come on. I'm, gonna... I'm like, look, here's the thing. <clears throat> if you just say boyfriend and don't miss a beat, you're the leader of this team. For many, you're a second father. For some, you're their first father. And you have your entire coaching staff and the entire team in that locker room. You send a very strong message to that closeted athlete that, hey, my coach, the leader of this team has my back. So that's a safe space for me to go and have a conversation. You also send a message to the entire team, including your colleges, is that if you're not on board with me as the head coach here, and we got a problem with this. I said, let me tell you a little story. Back in 1969, Vince Lombardi, you know who Vince Lombardi is, right? Yeah, of course, right? Name engraved on the uh, Super Bowl trophy. An amazing coach. Yes, of course, total respect for him. Well, then respect this, converse, this, this story I'm about to tell you. In 1969, he walked into the locker room of the Washington Redskins. Now, at the time, he had two players on the team that were gay. He also had two um, administrators in the front office that were gay at the Washington Redskins in 1969. 
And he basically walked in that locker room, told the entire team and coaching staff, if you have a problem with a gay player, then you have a problem with me. So if Vince Lombardi, one of the greatest coaches of all time, could do this in 1969 as a guy from Brooklyn, Catholic, very masculine, very macho, then why the hell can't you do this in 2020? That's a great story. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Thanks for bringing up Dave Copay. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. Great yeah, guy. he is. He lives in LA, still a great guy. Oh, good. Yeah. So let me ask you, during any part of your career, did you ever get down on yourself and feel that this work at this level was just too challenging for you? Um, well, challenging, yes. Um, too, too challenging for me to bear, no. Um, and I think that that just comes from me as an elite athlete growing up you know, constantly overcoming challenges as an athlete and never giving up and keeping your eye on the prize and keeping focused on, you know, moving forward, you know? Um, so yeah, definitely challenging, but you know, there's always a different road, right? Taking the road less traveled, a different path. It might be more, it might be harder and more challenging, but eventually you end up at the same place and uh, you won't have a lot of distractions because not many people are traveling that road. I think, Tim, that that is sort of, I don't know how to explain that. I think that's innate in me. And I think it's part of why some people are entrepreneurs and others couldn't even fathom being an entrepreneur. Um, and I, I am that type of person. Uh, I'm a dreamer, I'm an entrepreneur, um, someone that's committed and focused and, you know, um, meet the challenges head on and, and push through them. That's great. So these, these experiences and situations that <clears throat> you're involved with, did, did they strike you at a deep level and affect your feelings and emotions and you know how did you deal with that or how do you deal with that yeah i mean the short answer is absolutely um particularly when you deal in the work of um lgbt equality human rights mental health and suicide they're not the most exciting um uh, issues to, you know, make you feel good unless you win, right? Um, you know, so on the LGBT front, you know, I've listened to many stories from young people that are in crisis and contemplating to take their life. I mean, I feel that is a privilege. And I often say to people that sit on crisis lines that, individuals are welcoming you into their world and sharing something with you that they may never ever share with anybody else in their lifetime, perhaps. So consider that a privilege. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, that's the LGBT side of it, but uh, mental health and suicide can be a very dark place. Uh, again, I don't know 
how I operate in this space because I'm the kind of guy that if I see that commercial from the, you know, of the pets and the dogs, like I can't even watch that, right? That are being abused. But yet I can have, I can be very comfortable in helping someone that's going through crisis on a crisis line or he's even considering taking their life. Um, I've been there, I've done it, so I know. I, I don't know, and I, you know, I've asked that question many a times, and perhaps it's because um, I've experienced it many times with people and have been a catalyst um, for helping those people push through it, which is very gratifying. I think another piece of the puzzle could be, you know, I never considered taking my life or hurting myself, nor have I ever dealt with major mental health um, challenges or illnesses. So um, perhaps that makes it easier for me. Uh, I don't know that answer, but yeah, there are many stories and many dark times that I have been through with, with people. And, you know, look, I'm human too. So there are days where, you know, I've had bad days just like everybody else. And I come home depressed or upset, but, you know, I know that that's that day and tomorrow is a different day and a new day and just, you know, begin it. Um, and again, not to be redundant, but I think it goes back to my world of being an athlete and, um, you know, pushing through it and determination, hard work, commitment type of thing. Well, that's a really healthy way to deal with your feelings and emotions and, you know, looking for that solution. And that's part of who you are, your fabric. And yeah, I read and talk to so many people who are overwhelmed <laughs> by life situations, you know, and their feelings and emotions washing over them and, and keeping them stuck. And to the point where uh, they need to ask for help, but they don't, you know, because they have a fear of, you know, being labeled as yeah. not masculine. And, you know, they grew up with their uh, father who was doing their best, but the masculinity norms were, were really off track when they talked about suck it up, be a man, don't be a pansy, blah, blah, blah. So uh, one, of, one of the messages that I try to get across in my book and in my podcast and public speaking is, you know, it's okay to ask for help. It, totally. it, it takes more courage to ask for help than not to. Yeah. And, and who cares if somebody else uh, thinks something different than you think about that? You know, it's... Okay. It, it's your it's your life it's your business so you know what's best for you is something that you know you have to follow absolutely well let's look at your nuclear family while you were growing up as a kid where where exactly did you grow up uh well i was born in washington dc in the city and my parents lived there the early part of my days you know i was so too young I mean, I remember maybe a little bit, but then they moved out to the suburbs um, right outside the city in Maryland. So that's really where I grew up. And uh, it was a great childhood. Did you have any brothers or sisters? No, only child. Wish I did. I always said to my mom and dad, can I have a brother or sister? 
Yeah. My mom always said, go talk to your dad. My dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great answer. Yeah. A great answer. So yeah. how would parents, <laughs> how would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough? Uh, ever show you love, discuss emotions and feelings? Uh, I love my dad. Um, my dad is an incredible man. Um, he's not an emotional man or a man that shows his feelings outwardly, but he is a very caring and loving person. So, you know, although he might not have been that dad that hugged me every day and said, I love you every day, I, I knew that he loved me and, and does love me and, and cared about me. I just know that because I saw it in his actions, right? It's the, you know, words are important, but actions are more important. And my dad always showed up. Um, I never dealt with that masculine, you know, type of thing in my, in my home. I grew up in a very safe environment, loving mom and dad, very protective, um, you know, but they also, you know, gave me the ability to live my own life and make my own decisions. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad set some really great examples of a man. Now, now mind you, I grew up, I'm dating myself here, but, you know, um, back in the seventies at a time where, you know, women were running the household, but, um, and, and, and the you know, meaning cooking and cleaning and you know all the household chores that you stereotypically see, stereotypically see uh, with women. That was not the case in my family. Um, my dad shared in the chores with my mom. I mean, I saw my dad at the ironing board ironing ironing clothes. I saw my dad doing laundry. I saw my dad, you know, helping to make dinner. Um, and, you know, he took care of, uh, you know, everything else on the outside, washing the car, fixing the car, doing the, you know, lawn, you know, mowing the lawn. Um, so he set a really great example for me that, you know, carried on into, until adulthood. But I never had that, you know, macho masculinity type of environment that came from my dad, which in fact, I very well could be because he was an athlete himself. He was a football player and a baseball player, you know, growing up at a time in the 50s and, you know, 60s when, you know, it was all about, you know, masculinity. Um, so yeah, I, uh, my, my family nucleus was a very healthy one, fortunately for me, knock on wood, you know. Let me ask you, did he ever sit you down and have a discussion about masculinity or was it just you learn by his actions. We never had the conversation. And I, you know, I think it was like learn by actions, you know, and my mom and dad never sat, you know, down and had a conversation with me about the birds and the bees either. So I just think it's, you know, who they are as people, wonderful people and felt confident enough in their son that, you know, as long as he grew up in a safe environment was very supportive that, you know, we would help guide him when he needed guided and support him when he needed supported. But other than that, you know, he's, he, he has the ability to, to grow and do that. But um, no, we never had that conversation. Okay. Um, and when you were growing up, did you ever display any risky behavior? 
Uh, no, because I really didn't have time to, because as a swimmer, you know, my mornings began at 4 a.m. Um, off the training. I would be park, carpooled back home, get myself off to school, come into school late, um, leave school early to go back to train, be carpooled back home, have dinner, homework, and then went to bed. So I didn't have enough time to get into trouble or risky behavior. Um, and that just was a function of my training and schedule as a swimmer. Well, that's why you lead a healthy life. Um, so many people, uh, even now, are experiencing some form of depression or mental health issue that they're dealing with, especially in the pandemic. Absolutely. And because, especially men, with their masculinity norms that were taught by their fathers who were just doing their best, yeah. or, or the media, you know, it, it has prevented those men from coming forth and asking for help. And that's when risky behaviors start showing up. Totally alcoholism and drug addiction, pill addiction, violence, rape, and even suicide. Totally. And, and this is something that I really, you know, speak to a lot in my book and podcast in my message, because again, I, I, I want to, you know, there's 300 million people in the world who have depression, but only half of those get help. Yeah. <laughs> and my my thought is is that that's the biggest area of opportunity for me in the work I do to make a difference is to try and communicate that it's okay to ask for help and for people to realize that it's the healthy thing to do as opposed as opposed to doing those risky behaviors that I did I had to get sober from so many other people find themselves in the middle of, and they don't really understand it. And, and they don't ask for help, especially men. So it's, uh, it's a real important issue. Um, now, you must come in contact with people who, and, and maybe some of these athletes that you deal with that are challenged by depression. Mm-hmm. Or, or or other mental health issues. Um, how do you do? You say anything to them? Do you give them any guidance? Do do you talk about it? How how do you deal with it? And how do they deal with it? So um, it's a great question. I think that uh. A lot of athletes, particularly LGBT athletes that are sort of living silently in the closet, gravitate, you know, to me because of my expertise and my knowledge base and just my personal experience and uh, support and, you know, outwardly facing successes with working with, um, you know, elite professional athletes that are struggling. So they come into the conversation with me knowing that I have expertise in mental health and suicide. I have expertise in LGBT um, issues and living in the, and coming out in the closet. Um, 
and they know that I have, you know, that expertise in, in, in terms of athletes in the world of sport. Um, and it's not just individuals, it's also that I work with the leading governing bodies of sport on, this on these two issues and two intersections of LGBT and mental health and suicide, you know, with like the big leagues, the big five, the you know, USOC, um, the NC2A. So there's that level of confidence and trust. Plus they also know that, you know, I, you know, I walk the walk, right? I have led, I have built and led the Trevor Project with many people over many years to become the, the largest uh, crisis intervention and suicide prevention um, uh, organization in the world for LGBT youth. So they also see that credibility and expertise. And they also see my work, you know, at the national level, um, you know, in, 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 you know, blazing a path um, for a new day to address mental health and suicide prevention in our country with both the public and private sectors uh, leaders. So there's, so the, I become that, I become a connected place for them to be. So connectedness we know is really important. And, um, and also the fact that um, because of my work, like I keep this, I would keep this quiet, right? And and know how to help them navigate through the process. But, you know, look, it's, I've helped many elite professional athletes come out of the closet and that is a journey. Um, <clears throat> it's a journey for them. My focus is on them, but, you know, I would be naive to say that it doesn't, you know, affect me personally and professionally as well, because I'm right there with them. I'm invited into a space that few get to be a part of including people in their family have no idea what they're going through. So, you know, relatable support, connectedness, someone that really understands uh, with no judgment and someone that's been there and can help them get to the other side, you know, is a beautiful, um, you know, ingredients for a wonderful relationship. Um, I don't know if any of that makes sense, but, you know, it really, Tim, at the end of the day, you know, is about having a strong, positive relationship and, and connectedness with others that you trust to help you get through these tough times and dark spaces, you know, the extreme of suicidal thoughts um, until you get to that other side or you get to a place where you feel good and comfortable and safe for yourself. That, that's another important uh, issue that I deal with and point out is that, you know, dealing with these issues improves the quality of your relationships, whether it's men with men, men with women at home or in the workplace. Yes. And, you know, communication skills and relationship skills are something that often people don't even consider when it comes to the ingredients of a good relationship. Mm -hmm. And I talk about how important that is. And, and, and that will hopefully ingrain trust between those people. Yes. So that they can have a more intimate connection that is meaningful. And oh. life, 
that, to me, that's what life is really about. A lot of life is, is having those meaningful relationships with people that you can trust and confide in and, and discuss, you know, real issues with. So yeah. it's an important thing. But the human experience, right? Human relationships, really getting down to the humanity of it all and understanding that, you know, we all need each other. Yep. Love thy neighbor. There's, yeah. you can talk about all kinds of solutions, but love thy, love thy neighbor, you know, if we all practice that, we wouldn't have yeah, exactly. the issues that we wrestle with. Um, all right, so let me pivot a little. I know you don't have any children. I don't think you do, but if, if, you ever, <laughs> if you ever did, if you ever did, um, how would you characterize yourself as the father? What, what would be your aspirations as a father of your children? Wow. That's a, a loaded question. Would you be easy? Would you be tough, abrasive, yelling and screaming, having that conversation about masculinity? Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I, I definitely wouldn't be abusive in any way, either physically or emotionally. I would always come from a place of being supportive and, you know, very similar to my parents, although, you know, they would hear every day, I love you and feel a hug every day uh, from me because I know how important that is for human connectedness. Um, so, you know, loving, caring, um, making sure they knew that I was someone that they could have real conversations with um, and a place that, a safe place that they could turn to if they need help and know that they have a father that's got their back and stands with them, you know, regardless. Um, you know, I, I also would probably be let them find their own path and what they want to do, you know, give them the support, and the love and, you know, everything that they need to live a healthy life and um, <clears throat> and let them sort of find their own way in the world, help guide them. Um, I'm sure there are times where I would, you know, disagree with a, a, a teenager and say, look, you know, you might want to consider this. I don't know if I would ever tell them what to do unless it involved their safety or well-being, then I would, you know, sort of draw the line. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I'd be a great loving father. I think it's a, a part of my life that I have missed out on that I wish, you know, because I, I do wish I had that young, you know, boy, son that I could, you know, coach Little League with or that young daughter that, um, you know, I could, you know, just be very supportive and, and, and loving. And uh, yeah, if I had two kids, it would be amazing, a boy and a girl. <laughs> but I yeah, don't. That's great. <laughs> well, you never know. Um, you've had some great experiences. And can you share with us what some of the biggest things that you've learned from all these experiences? Uh, again, going back to... Um, what I said at the top of the conversation, like focus, 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 never give up, push through it in times of, uh, you know, during hard times or tragedy or challenges, 
Um, but I often keep in the back of my mind this uh, quote by uh, Maya Angelou that really has resonated for me for a very long time um, is, you know, people, I got to get this right. Um, people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Yep. And I think that that really is the essence of who I am as a person and um, the foundation of the work that I do. Excellent. Excellent. One last question. Personally, how do you describe masculinity? It's um, a series of unspoken rules that men have to abide by. And we're taught, well, there's these misguided notions of masculinity, right? Um, and we're taught, men that are taught um, that if you crave these emotional bonds, that's not manly, right? That's weak. Um, you're less masculine. Uh, you must be gay. Um, so really it's, it's, you know, in culture and society, it's these series of unspoken rules that men feel like that they have to follow. So they don't appear to be weak or less than, um, when it moves into the realm of toxic masculinity, I mean, that's where it gets, um, really bad for many, right? Because, uh, many men come home and they have no one to turn to or talk to. And even if they did, they probably would choose not to because it would make them look less than or weak. Um, so toxic masculinity is literally killing um, people and it's affecting one's physical health and mental health. And quite frankly, Tim is creating an epidemic of loneliness that leads to very unhealthy outcomes in life um and the most extreme is suicide and it's probably a major or not probably it is a major indicator of why you know men is the largest population in this country that you know take their life to suicide um so we need to do better in a big way and these messages from society and culture need to start with our young boys about what manhood and masculinity is really um, about because right now in many situations for young boys it's very confusing and that confusion um, impacts not just their personal life but their overall you know physical and mental health um, their well-being in general their relationships and if you're an athlete their performance on the fields and court playing field of the world yeah uh Absolutely agree, and and that's why I'm doing what I do because these issues need to be talked about. And yep. um, you know, I look at masculinity as a three-sided triangle: one being the guy that is strong, obviously can lift heavy objects like pianos, but also the guy who's who's strong in doing the tough things, having a meeting with a person, whether it's in their family or their business, that they know they have to have that discussion and 
it's going to be tough for the other person to swallow, but they know that it's of vital importance that that communication take place. Right. And, and another side of that triangle is having a sense of humor, not being so serious about life and mm -hmm. being, being liked and realizing that, that, you know, life is, is also fun and, and we need right. to pay attention to that. And the other side is the spiritual side that whatever anybody chooses to connect with, it's just important that they have a connection spiritually and, and spend time with that to help them, you know, give them a base of reference and help them to grow and, you know, elevate their energy into a higher level of consciousness to improve mankind. And I think if a man has all of these qualities, to me, he's a masculine man. Yep. And I think it's, it's, that's why I'm doing this. I've, I've got to get this work out to as many people as possible because referring to what you said, it affects people's health of okay. them and those around them. And it's killing us. Yes. And, and, you know, the statistics that you can, you and I can talk about and suicides and mental health issues and risky behavior. It's totally unnecessary if people, especially men, take the step, have the courage to ask for help, even, even if it's their primary care physician who can give them a referral to a trusted and qualified psychiatrist, psychologist, whomever it is that yeah. can provide a pathway for especially men to, to live a, a happy and healthy life, even if they have these mental health issues. I'm, I'm a living proof of that. You know, I have severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring and it drove my addictions. And for 41 years, I, I, lived in addiction mm -hmm. and finally i had asked for help because i did have the butcher knife in my hand ready to cut my wrist and lost everything in life and once i asked for help you know a doctor did the extensive research properly diagnosed me and prescribed solutions that have made me feel healthier and happier than I've ever been. And right. I want to share that story with, with others because it doesn't, you know, you don't have to live at the end of an alcohol binge or drug binge or, or, you know, be tied to Oxycontin for the rest of your life. Yep. You can, you can overcome and with the help of others. And like we said, Love thy neighbor. We're all in this together. So let's let's take positive steps. So Amen. I agree with you. It's time to, I mean, I think that, you know, what you and I are really the essence of what we're talking about is um, telling stories, right? Storytelling. 
And one thing that I say to the field of mental health and suicide and to leading researchers in this country and scientists that it's time to take the science and the research and infuse it into storytelling so we can humanize these stories and we can get these stories out of those that um, have that are survivors of those that have experienced this so it's very relatable to others that are experiencing those type of, of feelings um, so more of that to come in 2021 again that storytelling for me is really an important component to what I do, but we just don't have enough of that in mental health and suicide. Frank, frankly, though, we are seeing a lot more um, in Hollywood and, and sort of um, storylines that are addressing this. And that's a big breakthrough because, yep. uh, you know, that helps people sort of humanize, you know, what people are going through. Well, I think next year in 2021, I think it's going to be a, a benchmark year for the topics that we're talking about in, in yep. and around mental health and, and because of such the, the tough times that we've all gone through. And now we've seen, you know, what happens when mental health issues get in the way of a happy and, and healthy, healthy life. So yep. I'm, I'm hoping for that. Sure. Well, well, listeners, as you can see, David's story is quite remarkable. He's a self-made man of courage, bravery, and giving to his community, a true role model for our world today. We're honored to have you on our podcast today. Do you have any final thoughts? Um, be happy. <laughs> that's that's so, so funny that you say that, because at the end of this whole thing, I'm going to say, and don't forget, have fun today. And yeah, yeah. Yes. That's what Enjoy I want. Life, embrace life, you know, yeah. the good and the bad and be happy. Well, I look forward to continuing our dialogue, David, moving forward so I can learn from you so I can help others. So thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. Listeners, please look out for the Time Out for Mental Health podcast where you get your podcast and keep your eyes out for my new book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun a book for men about depression, relationships, masculinity, and suicide. And feel free to contact me for speaking engagements through my website, timcrass.com. Have fun, everyone. <laughs>